0: Hey everyone, I can't believe we have wrapped this season of Red Collar. I hope you've enjoyed these wild tales of white-collar criminals and real-life American psychos who do anything to cover up their crimes. I'm sad to call this the end, but after a full year of Red Collar, it's time to close this chapter. But don't worry, I'm still going to be around. You can catch me on my other series, Hell and Gone, available on all podcast listening platforms, I'm actually working on two new investigations for that series right now, and season four will be available to you soon. You can also find me on social media. I'll be posting updates on all my red-collar investigations and everything else I'm working on on Instagram at Love Detective. That's L-O-V-E, Detective, on Instagram. There's also a ton of other AudioChuck content for you to listen to, like Anatomy of Murder or Strangeland which just yesterday dropped an entire season for you to binge. But I wouldn't leave you just like that. So before I go, I'm going to give you one last episode. At around 3 p.m. on the afternoon of June 26, 2003, in Verona, Wisconsin, a leafy, quiet suburb of Madison, A woman named Elaine Hendrickson pulled up to an apartment at 305 South Main Street. Today, that space is commercial, but back then it was a residential apartment in a very safe area. In fact, Madison, the home of the University of Wisconsin, regularly makes the U.S. News and World Report's list of top 10 places to live in the United States. Madison's downtown is very lively, but Verona has a lot of parks and more of a suburban feel. Elaine showed up on that hot summer afternoon because her nephew, 28-year-old Jason McGuigan, lived in that duplex with his two roommates. According to forensic files, Elaine was stopping there to pick up an old computer from Jason, who was also her godson. She looked into the windows and knocked on the door, but got no response. So she walked around to the back and saw a door open. So Elaine went inside, and that's when she saw the two dead bodies lying on the living room couch. They were Jason's roommates, 25-year-old Daniel Swanson and 17-year-old Dustin Wilson. They had both been crashing on the couches that night, and police later figured out that they had both been shot multiple times while they were sleeping. Jason was in the bedroom, lying on the bed on his back. Blood was everywhere. The autopsies would reveal that Jason had been shot twice, in the head and in the chest, the killer had used a nine-millimeter handgun. Now, this was the biggest story in town. It was, according to the Badger Herald, the first triple homicide in Madison in over three decades. And everyone wanted to know, why would someone massacre three roommates in a quiet suburb? What was really going on inside that duplex? I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police were processing the crime scene at that duplex on South Main Street. And one of the first things that they noticed was that the place didn't appear to have been ransacked. So they believed this was not a simple robbery gone wrong. They started working on the theory pretty early on that the killer had been targeting Jason. They believed that Jason's friends had been collateral damage and just had the horrifically bad luck of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Based on the evidence, They believed the killer had surprised the two men on the sofa and fatally shot them first and then waited at the house for Jason. The police theorized that the killer may have forced Jason into the bedroom after he got home and may have had a conversation with him while holding him at gunpoint. Now they had to figure out what did the killer want from Jason? There didn't seem to be anything major stolen from the house and Jason's new $60,000 black Cadillac Escalade was still parked outside. So if someone just wanted to steal from the guys randomly, that would have been by far the most valuable item to take. So police needed to figure out who was in the guy's social group and also talk to anyone who had seen anything suspicious around the apartment complex that day. Some of the victim's family members talked to the press about their shock. 17-year-old Dustin had moved to the area a few months prior to the murder. And his family said he was a good kid who basically got mixed up with some bad people. He had done some time in jail for allegedly stealing items out of cars, and he was trying to get his life together. But it didn't seem like his plan to stay in Verona was working out. His girlfriend told the state journal that he had been crashing at Jason's because he was trying to raise enough money to go back to Iowa, his home state. Dustin's stepfather, Mike Snook, told the Courier, quote, Something's gone wrong. He'd been calling his brothers and stuff and saying he's afraid, saying they're out to kill him and they had been shooting at him, but he would never say who, end quote. Mike Snook was talking about people who were targeting Jason. Very early in the investigation, people who had known Jason said that he didn't really seem to have a job. He was known for being a high roller, and what he did all day every day, essentially, was make sports bets. But he had been on a losing streak recently, so Jason owed a lot of money to a lot of people, people who may have been chasing him to collect those gambling debts. Police talked to one of Jason's neighbors, a guy named Todd, who lived upstairs. Todd said he had gotten into a fight with Jason just a few days before the murders. Things got physical, and Jason slapped Todd, according to forensic files. The police were called, but no charges were ever filed. So police were definitely interested in talking to Todd, someone who admitted that he had had a recent altercation with Jason and clearly didn't seem to like him. Todd said that he had heard loud banging and what sounded like someone walking loudly downstairs in the early morning hours of June 26th at around 2.30 a.m., but he told law enforcement he hadn't realized at the time that he was hearing gunshots. That's not unusual, by the way. You would think that if you heard several gunshots that you would freak out, but sometimes the brain doesn't process those sounds as gunshots. We try to make them something else in our mind, something less dangerous, like backfiring cars or fireworks. Or we try to tell ourselves that it's just the neighbors partying. Police tested Todd's hands for gunpowder residue. The test came back negative. Police searched and carefully cataloged everything inside Jason's apartment. And they realized after they searched that there were a couple of items missing from the house. Jason's nine millimeter Glock handgun, which he had bought recently from a local gun dealer, and the key to his safety deposit box. Another witness came forward and told police that she had seen three men in a black Cadillac Escalade. She was able to identify the men as Daniel, Dustin, and Jason. She said they'd been arguing with an Asian man in a silver car. According to forensic files, the guys were yelling and making what the witness called inappropriate gestures at the Asian man. From the description of what went down with this witness, It seems like she didn't really seem to know what was going on and thought that it could have been some kind of road rage incident. Police were also taking a look at the cars parked outside Jason's residence, and one of them, a red Toyota, didn't belong to any of the victims. Police traced the car to Mengju Wu, known as Mark, a 19-year-old sophomore at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mark was originally from Taiwan, he was studying Chinese at UW-Madison. He came from a wealthy family, lived in downtown Madison, and was described by everyone who knew him as quiet and very studious and polite. It was that classic thing where something dramatic happens and everyone you talk to about a possible witness describes him as a really nice guy. His parents, Chao Shu Wu and Lian Wu, lived in Taipei. They had sent their son to the States, in the hopes that an American education would give him a chance at a better life. He went to high school in Delaware before heading to UW-Madison after graduation. He was a good student. In fact, he was an honor student. Mark seemed like an unlikely suspect at first because according to police, everyone had described him as this clean cut guy. He had zero history of violence or any kind of trouble ever. Police were trying to piece together the clues and to figure out what had really happened inside that apartment. They were also wondering, could Mark have been the Asian guy who the witness saw arguing with Dustin, Daniel, and Jason? And if he lived in downtown Madison, which was about 30 miles away, why was his car parked outside of Jason's apartment? They needed to figure out what the relationship was between Jason and Mark. When they talked to Mark, he said that he and Jason had been friends, but he admitted they hadn't known each other for long. Police found out they had actually known each other for about six weeks. And on the surface, though they seemed to be total opposites, it turned out that Mark and Jason did have one mutual hobby, a love of gambling. Mark had an explanation for the car, too. He said that it was parked there because he'd been planning to fly to New York City for a visit with his family. And since he said he had more than one car and parking was hard to find where he lived, sometimes he said he would leave one of his cars at Jason's place so that it would be safe while he was out of town. So police asked Mark what he was doing on the night of June 25th into the morning of the 26th, the night of the murder. Mark claimed that he was home alone, and he completely denied having anything to do with the murders. But what Mark didn't know was that the police got access to his cell phone records, so they already knew that Mark's cell phone had pinged at a tower near Verona, near where Jason lived, in the early morning hours of June 26th. So now they strongly suspected that Mark had been in Verona, in the neighborhood on the night of the murder. But if Mark and Jason were friends, why would Mark wanna hurt Jason? Police were taking a closer look at Jason too. On the surface, he seemed to be this fun-loving, kind of easygoing guy. But it turned out that Jason had been battling demons and hiding some pretty dark secrets for a long time. Jason was born in 1975. Growing up, according to his obituary, he loved the same things that a lot of other Wisconsin kids do, like trout fishing and Packers games. But he also developed another hobby, when he learned from his father, Robert McGuigan, gambling. After Jason's death, by the way, his father Robert basically made it his life's mission to warn people about the dangers of compulsive gambling. He talked a lot about what happened to his son, He told the reporter Jenny Wu in a two-part interview that was printed in Isthmus magazine and on gambling911.com that Jason always loved games. Jason started out playing games at Chuck E. Cheese when he was a kid. Then over time, he moved on to competitive dart tournaments. Then as a teen, he started using the computer to make bets. Robert said that he watched as over the years, his son's behavior seemed to get more and more compulsive. Robert and his wife divorced when Jason was 13 and Jason went to live with Robert full-time. Robert said that his brother Jason's uncle was one of the biggest bookies in Madison at that time and soon Jason was placing bets with his uncle. Robert explained that though he also loved gambling for him it was always just a fun pastime so he didn't recognize the signs of addiction and he said he didn't realize that things were getting out of control with Jason until it was basically too late. He said he now wishes that he could turn back the clock. He said, quote, Looking back, I can now see the intensity in his eyes and the adrenaline that was pumping through him. But I didn't know at that time that gambling was an addiction and it's obvious now that he was addicted, End quote. Robert said that he got calls from Jason's school, calls about Jason sleeping during class and his grades started slipping. But Robert told Jenny Wu that he'd never realized that his son was staying up all night to watch sports betting. Right after he turned 18, Jason started gambling at a local casino called the Ho-Chunk. Jason made, but also lost, a lot of money there over the years. And when he couldn't come up with money to make just one more bet, he ended up scamming money from his own family. Including, according to Robert, $250,000 that he borrowed from his great aunt. Jason promised to give the money back, but he never did. And Robert said that this ended up financially devastating Jason's aunt and also destroying Robert's relationship with her when she refused to cut Jason off financially. Robert said that Jason, who he described as a con artist, could talk anyone into anything. He said Jason borrowed $10,000 from his aunt at first, according to Robert, by implying that he would kill himself if she didn't hand the money over. Robert went to the police but there was nothing they could do because it's totally legal for a family member to give another family member money. Robert made Jason's aunt promise that she would not give Jason any more money after that. She agreed, but Robert said she continued to enable Jason, eventually giving him that quarter of a million dollars. She never cut him off until she ran out of money herself. Jason was placing bets with bookies, but the bookies eventually stopped dealing with him because he got so far into debt. Eventually, even his own uncle stopped letting him place bets. But by then, the laws were changing, and Jason had an alternative way to tap into more money. He could go online and use offshore accounts. Robert described one of the last times that he saw Jason. He told Jenny Wu, quote, "'My son, who was backing out of his driveway, "'saw me walking up the driveway "'and put his foot on the gas pedal "'and put it all the way to the floor. "'Had I not jumped as fast as I did out of the way, I would not be giving you this interview today. This was not the son that I knew. This was not the son that I saw the day before up at Ho-Chunk. This was not the son that was a caring and loving and nurturing individual. I was seeing a completely, totally different individual. Somebody whose life was being controlled by the gambling. His life had completely changed. He had changed." Over the years, it seems like Jason's family did what a lot of addicts' families do. They tried to get him help and rehab and counseling, but none of it seemed to work. Jason could not give up the gambling. And according to his dad, his personality totally changed, and Jason eventually became super aggressive. So Robert cut off all contact with him. After that incident in the driveway, Robert said the next time that he saw his son, Jason was in a coffin. So, Jason was known for making big bets at the Ho-Chunk Casino, and in April 2003, about six weeks before the triple murders, Jason was playing blackjack there, and that's when he met Mark for the first time. They apparently hit it off and started gambling together. Jason helped Mark set up an offshore account in the Bahamas and hooked him up with an offshore gambling company called Olympic Sports. Now, the offshore gambling is a story in and of itself, over the years, a lot of these online casinos have popped up and they set themselves up in places like the Caribbean so they don't have to abide by U.S. laws. Olympic sports was run by a guy named Spiros Athanas, and this guy has a very controversial history. How offshore betting works is that you go to the company's website and put money into an offshore account. The money can be sent through wire transfer or paid with a credit card. Once the money is in your offshore account, you can use it to place bets. After police checked Mark's cell phone records and found that both he and Jason had called Olympic Sports, they contacted the company. And according to forensic files, Olympic Sports cooperated with police. Because Mark always placed his bets over the phone and because Olympic Sports recorded their calls, police were able to listen to the call that Mark made to them. If you listen, you can hear Mark asking about teams And you can clearly hear someone else in the background, almost in Mark's ear, someone who sounded like Jason. And you can hear that second person, who law enforcement concluded was Jason, directing Mark. Forensic files made the point that everybody pretty much knew after listening to that phone call, it was obvious that Mark was not a seasoned sports better because he seemed to be getting all of his information from Jason. You can also hear in that call that he doesn't even seem to know the name of the teams or the pitchers. I know nothing about sports, but even I can figure out that he's not the mastermind behind these bets. Now, a lot of people believe that Jason, who had a history of taking money from people, and remember, was somehow able to buy a brand new Escalade, even though we know he lost a lot of money and owed people a lot of money, probably saw Mark as an easy target. It definitely seems like he was manipulating him, especially once he figured out that Mark had access to family money, a lot of money, Mark started making more and more bets with Jason, and he started losing big. He told police that between the months of April and June, he had racked up $15,000 in gambling debt, but it turned out that the real losses were higher. In fact, he had lost $15,000 in one single bet, and it was later revealed that between December and June, Mark had withdrawn $72,000 from his bank account. He lied to his parents at first, telling them that the extra money was for school. But after a while, they figured out what was going on. They were coming to the States to confront Mark. They told him that they were taking him back to Taiwan. So Mark was coming to the end of the road and he was getting more and more desperate. So he told Jason that he wanted to make one big score to make things right. One that would hopefully allow him to repay his parents or at least to be able to buy some time and put some money back into the account. It's unclear exactly what happened with the bet But the story that Mark told was that he told Jason to put $8,000 down on a baseball game, the Cleveland versus Pittsburgh game. And if the bet paid out, Mark and Jason would have each won $17,000. Police say that Mark watched that game. It ended up going into extra innings, 15 in all. But in the end, Mark's team won and apparently he got super excited. According to a criminal complaint, he started openly celebrating at that point a lot of people saw him looking super happy. He might have thought that everything would be okay at that point, at least that he could maybe reassure his parents so that he would save face. But then his elation turned to despair when he called Jason. And Jason broke the news to Mark that he had never placed a bet on that game. Now, it's not clear what happened here, whether Jason forgot to place the bet or whether, as his dad Robert told the reporter Jenny Wu, Jason got cold feet or... As some people have suggested, Jason took Mark's money, thinking that Mark's team would lose. And then Jason spent the money by the time he was supposed to pay out. It's also not clear where all of Mark's money went. Whatever was going on, Mark believed that Jason had stolen from him and owed him a lot of money. By this point, Mark was getting more and more enraged and Jason was getting more and more nervous. On June 6th, Jason bought his Glock 9mm gun He told his friends that the gun was for protection. He said he got it because he had just bought the Escalade and was afraid of being carjacked. But he waved the gun around at Mark when Mark confronted him about the missing money. And at that point, Jason allegedly told Mark to keep his mouth shut. Shortly after that, he was dead. And the police investigating these murders still couldn't find the murder weapon. But they were able to prove that Jason had been killed by his own gun. First, they found the receipt for Jason's Glock that he had recently purchased inside his apartment. So now they had the name and information of the person who had sold him the gun. Then when they searched Mark's apartment and his other vehicle, which by the way was a silver car that seemed to match the description the witness had given of the one the Asian man who got into a confrontation with the three victims was driving, police found the gun owner's manual inside. They believed that this was Jason's because this was a new gun. The receipt and other stuff were in the apartment. Only the owner's manual, the gun, and the gun case were missing. I did a deep dive into ballistics for this episode because I was thinking, how could Jason's gun be linked to the killings if detectives never found the gun? This was a part of the story that forensic files kind of skipped over. So I made some calls to gun stores. And it turns out that when you buy a gun legally, depending on where you buy it, often the seller will include a couple of rounds with the gun, bullets that have already been fired. When a bullet is fired, the firing pin leaves grooves on the shell casings that are unique to that particular weapon. So the seller has a record of the shell casings, kind of a fingerprint. If police pick up ammunition from a crime scene, even if they don't have the actual gun, they can compare the shell casings. In this case, ballistics experts were able to determine that the shell casings at the crime scene match the ones that were linked to Jason's gun. Now, the police had asked Mark about Jason's gun, He said that he had held the gun before, but that he never fired it. I can't help thinking, as I'm sure the police did, that that story could have been a way to cover himself if the police found his fingerprints on the gun. So at that point, law enforcement probably started thinking they should look extra hard for those fingerprints. And that's what they did. Even when they didn't find anything at first, police didn't give up. They kept searching in the trash around Jason and Mark's apartments. Police found the gun case in a dumpster near Mark's residence. It had been cracked into two pieces, but they pulled it out and took it to the lab, and they started processing that gun case. The technician interviewed on Forensic Files said he didn't initially see any fingerprints, but then he removed the foam padding that the gun goes into and found what could be a print behind the padding. Then he used a method called superglue fuming Basically, it involved heating up superglue and letting it stick to the finger oils on the gun case. Then he was able to use a special type of yellow dye to enhance those prints. The technology was pretty amazing, and his tenacity paid off. He was able to get usable prints, and they were a match to Mark Wu. As a PI, I've done my share of digging through garbage, and I have to say it is truly exhausting and disgusting work, but it is so worth it when it pays off. And that definitely happened in this case because even though police didn't find a gun, they did find some other clues in the trash, in a dumpster near Mark's house. They found a bag with his credit card receipts inside. They also found a bloody sandal that belonged to Mark. Forensic testing revealed tiny droplets of blood on that sandal, and DNA testing would later reveal that the blood was a match to Dustin Wilson. Police believe that tiny droplets spattered on the sandal during the shooting. So police had some circumstantial evidence and were working on forensics, but it was far from a sure thing. Even though they didn't have a murder weapon yet, they believed that Mark Wu was their killer. But now they had another problem. Mark Wu was a huge flight risk. They were afraid that he could leave the country at any moment. And these fears were well-founded because the day after the murder, Mark left town. He flew to New York City, where he told police he had already planned to visit his aunt. Police issued something called a material witness warrant and were able to get Mark back to Wisconsin from New York that way. But the law says that a person detained on that type of warrant can't be arrested. So once again, the police's hands were tied. After they interviewed Mark, they had no choice but to let him go back to New York while they worked behind the scenes to try and clear up the red tape. Now at this point, Mark knew that he was facing first degree murder charges, which could mean life in prison. Detectives knew that Mark had originally been scheduled to fly back to Taiwan on July 1st. He flew back to New York on July 6th, and authorities were terrified that Mark would hop on a plane from there to Taiwan. And if he got there, there was no extradition treaty with the US. Detectives were worried that if he made that flight to Taiwan, he would escape justice forever. If Mark Wu got on the plane to Taiwan, he would be reunited with his family in a country that had no extradition treaty with the United States. Catching him required a ton of organization and cooperation between over 10 different agencies, including multiple sheriff's departments in Wisconsin and the FBI. Sometimes on TV and in real life, cases can be sunk because of bureaucracy or lack of cooperation. But in this case, everyone worked together and they were able to get it done. Police in Wisconsin called the NYPD, and Mark was arrested on June 6, 2003, at LaGuardia Airport as he was getting off a plane. Bernie Coughlin, the police chief in Verona, confirmed to reporters that they were worried that Mark, who had permanent resident alien status in the U.S., would flee the country and complimented the agencies that got involved in the arrest. So Mark was detained, but now Wisconsin had to get him back. The extradition process was long and complicated and dragged on, as so many of them do. But eventually, Mark was sent back from New York to Wisconsin and transferred to the Badger County Jail. He was charged with triple homicide. And Mark ended up staying in that jail cell for over a year before he was scheduled to go to trial. The prosecution was gearing up for a massive three-week trial with over 250 witnesses, and the victim's families look forward to their day in court when they could look Mark in the eye and hope that justice would be served. But unfortunately, they didn't get to see that justice served. Because while he was in prison, in January 2005, the day before his trial was due to start, Mark took his own life. According to the Badger Herald, Mark was found at around 12.55 a.m. by jail staff. He was hanging from a shower head. He had apparently attached some cloth, maybe torn off a strip of bedding, and hung himself. The shower attachments are supposed to be built to make it impossible for an inmate to attach something and hurt themselves like that. But somehow, Mark apparently found a way. Paramedics rushed to the scene, but there was nothing they could do. A press release from Dane County referred to multiple documents that were found in Mark's cell. These were later revealed to be letters to his friends and family, written in Chinese. While he was in jail, according to Madison.com, Mark had been spending his time writing a lot of letters. According to a Dane County Sheriff spokesperson, Mark's attorneys, Hal Harlow and Stephen Hurley, read the letters and then turned them over to the police. The attorneys said that while Mark did kind of allude that he may do something drastic, they didn't find anything in those letters that explicitly indicated that Mark planned to hurt himself. The attorneys also said they didn't find anything that gave him a motive for these murders. Hal Harlow told Madison.com, quote, They were thoughtful, sweet notes acknowledging people's contributions to him during his life. They provided no insight at all into what was motivating him, End quote. One of the attorneys reached out to Mark's parents, who were still in Taiwan, and broke the bad news. The victim's family said they were devastated when they heard about what happened to Mark. Now they believe they would never get justice for Dustin, Jason, and Daniel. And the story could have ended there, but the police and the prosecutors wanted to do their best to give the families of the victims some kind of answers. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. The prosecution reached out to the victims' families. They told them that they cared about them and were concerned about their well-being. And this is something that I'm not sure I've ever heard of in a case and I wasn't even sure it would be something that was possible before I read about this case. The prosecutors gave kind of a mini-trial. They presented all their physical evidence, all the stuff they would have brought to a real trial, like the fingerprints and Dustin's DNA and the blood droplets on the sandals. They presented this stuff to the families, and they also presented the circumstantial evidence, which helped paint a complete picture of what had been going on in Mark's life in the weeks leading up to the murder. Mark had taken the money, $72,000 that his parents knew about, and possibly a lot more, from his trust account. Mark was getting more and more desperate, especially once his parents told him they were coming over from Taiwan. Their plan was to take him back to his home country. Even after Jason told Mark to leave him alone and stop talking about the money, it seems that Mark was still determined to collect. Phone records showed that Mark kept calling Jason repeatedly in the days leading up to the murder. He got into the confrontation, the one the witnesses saw, the afternoon before the murders. The witness told police that the men were yelling at Mark and accusing him of following them. We'll never know for sure, but that may be why Dustin and Brian were camped out on the couch. They may have been afraid that they were being stalked. And if they were, they were right. Later that day, Mark broke into Jason's apartment. There was no one home then, but he did take Jason's gun and left. He kept calling Jason. Later, at around midnight, Mark broke in again, but Jason wasn't there. Instead, Daniel and Dustin were on the couch. Mark saw them lying there and shot them both dead at point-blank range. Then he sat there for hours, lying in wait for Jason. Jason got back home at around 2 a.m. Mark confronted him again, and again, Jason told him he didn't have the money. Police believe that Jason gave Mark the key to the safe deposit box in an attempt to calm him down. But then Mark shot Jason anyway. And we know from other red-collar cases that it's this time, the time when people realize they've lost all their money, they can't get any more, and they feel that they have nothing else to lose. They have to cover up the fraud. They feel like they're out of options. This is the time when they become very dangerous. Mark had put all of his hopes on that one big win to get out of debt. But he was finding out, as so many compulsive gamblers do, once you're deep enough in the hole, you're never going to crawl out. The controversy over sports gambling continues. In May 2018, in a court battle with the state of New Jersey, the US Supreme Court struck down a 1992 federal law that had forbidden states from legalizing sports gambling within their own borders. So after New Jersey won that case, as a result, any state can legalize sports betting, and many of them have. In fact, sports betting in the U.S. is bigger than ever. What used to be only available on giant video screens in Las Vegas can now be played on a cell phone. According to the website gambling911.com, Spiros Athanas, the guy who ran Olympic sports, the company that Jason and Mark placed bets with, was busted by the U.S. government as part of a massive indictment against another company called Legend Sports. Forbes reported that in January 2016, Spiros pled guilty to aiding and abetting in conducting an illegal gambling business and transmission of wagering information. The indictment alleged that Spiros based himself in Montego Bay, Jamaica, to avoid U.S. criminal prosecution. Over the years, Spiros has been investigated by multiple agencies, including the FBI. In the end, he was ordered to pay $5 million, but get this, he got no jail time. He was sentenced to just 12 months probation, In fact, most everyone involved in that massive federal case involving billions of dollars got probation or time served, according to the Forbes article. So gambling is still legal, and it's everywhere. Wiley Harwell, the executive director of the Oklahoma Association for Problem and Compulsive Gambling, told the Oklahoman about the challenges of treating gambling addicts. She said that it's tricky because, ideally, an addict is supposed to have zero contact with her drug of choice, But with gambling, it's kind of the same issue you have with food addiction. It's possible to totally abstain from alcohol or drugs. But even if you have issues with food, you have to have food to live. And in the same way, even if you have compulsions to gamble, you have to have access to money in some way to survive. She said her suggestion to help treat addicts is that for three to six months, they're not allowed cash or credit of any kind. The article read, quote, not even change for a parking meter, end quote. As they do with so many of these cases, the fallout from the murder continued. A year after the killings, Dustin's brother took his own life. His stepmother said that he never recovered from the loss of Dustin. Some people believe that online gambling directly led to Jason, Dustin, and Daniel's murders. Others say that's not true. They point out that Jason had criminal behavior in his background. Even his own father admitted that he was kind of a con artist. So if it wasn't sports betting, they believe it may have been something else. In fact, the episode of Forensic Files The Gambler is one of the most controversial episodes ever because a lot of people actually took Mark's side. We'll never know the whole story for sure, but Robert McGuigan continued his push to inform people about the dangers of online gambling up until his death a few years ago. In his interview with Jenny Wu, Robert said that his main goal is making people aware that what seems like a harmless game can turn into a life-consuming obsession. He wants universities and families to have the facts about gambling addiction, to talk about it openly in the US in the same way that we address drug addiction, especially when young minds are still forming. He talked about how his son's eyes would light up when he played games as a kid. He says he's still haunted by the fact that he encouraged Jason. Robert said, quote, I have to admit too, that I put that bullet in that gun that killed my son because I taught him how to gamble, end quote. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?